0: Yes, Josephine. You forgot your snowsuit? Okay. Let me uh, show you where your family is. (laughs) Right over here. But thanks for bringing that to my attention. Do you notice all the kids call me Grandpa? (laughs) Yes. You think that's hilarious, don't you, back there? I I don't think it's as funny as you do, (laughs) Becky, but I think it's funny. (laughs) You know why they do it? Because half of the the group down there is, yeah, yeah that's right. There's nine of them down there. So uh, that's why the rest of them go, well, his name must be Grandpa then. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> go for it. That is how you do it. You just get a group of people and they all look at the ceiling, right? And the next guy comes in, he looks at the ceiling, see? Same thing. Crowd control and manipulation. Yeah, I'm after all the dividend checks, if I can get them. Am I ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. March the 25th, 2018, lecture discussion number 16 on the book of Joel. We are, as is customary here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, meandering through the mysteries of the book of Joel. And it is the pace of the progress that is our established cliff, cliffside tradition. Uh, it's not that we're beautiful or downtown or cliffside, as everyone knows. We are hardly ever seldom described as cl- beautiful. We're miles from downtown Anchorage and there is no cliff. I need to keep saying that because I get, as you are aware, can we please have a wedding ceremony up here? In the beautiful downtown cliffside. Though we're in an earthquake zone, right? Alaska is the ring of fire. So at any moment, uh, we could be cliffside. <laughs> that could happen. I have personal experience with that. In 1964, I lived in Turnigan, Look it up. So, so is uh, Cindy and Ken. But I think Ken might have been in Fairbanks, right? Where, where were you in 64, Ken? You weren't even here. So, Cindy and I know the cliffside was on its way towards us both in 1964. Uh, And like I said, I was on Lord Baranoff Drive in 19, uh, during that earthquake. Uh, One 9.2 quake away. And I've said it many times, if there is a 9.2 earthquake, get out of this auditorium. And you'll know, I know, because the sound is something you have not heard. You have to go through that sound to remember it. This building will last a tenth of a second. Get out of here. Run for your lives, children. Okay, I probably need to clarify something from a few Sundays ago. uh, I think it's February 11th. uh, Supper Dave, if he truly exists, brought it to my attention. What I did very near uh, the end of that lecture, I made the point that if Adam were to have renamed himself, he renamed Eve, and if he were to have renamed himself, and that's a supposition that assumes that Adam had the willingness and the ability to do so. So it's a a hypothetical question or premise, I guess. I just thought about it for many years. If Adam would have chosen to rename himself, he would have likely called himself the father of all who physically die. He renamed the woman the mother of all that live. And that would compare, of course, in contrast also with Satan's father of all lies. Satan is the father of all lies. The woman is the mother of all who live. It would seem logical to me that Adam would know What has happened because of his fall, his decision, his sinful decision, don't misunderstand. He makes a disobedient decision. Uh, I would have thought that he would have called himself The father of all who die. And I was speeding up at the end as I always do. I had to crush in information of this obvious triad between Adam, Satan, and the woman or Eve. So to be able to reintroduce the subject later, which is my intention and my habit. And in doing so, I clumsily interjected an idiom of mine, as you might be aware. I injected as God defines death. I'll do it again every time I say all who die are death, as God defines death. Because I'm trying to beat you relentlessly, the audience, congregation, high internet, with the necessity of always knowing God's definitions, his definitions of death. So when you read a passage and it's death in there, you have to immediately construct the correct definition in order to not descend into the ditch of error. And immediately what I did after saying as God defines death, I said he. He. Now, who did I mean? I did not mean God. I meant Adam, and I gave the reference to Adam at Romans 5, which, of course, as you know, Romans 5 declares Adam to be the one man through whom sin and death entered the world. Or, as I like to now call it, the father of all who physically die. That was my reference. The he meant Adam, not God. Anyway, it was confusing because of the proximity to that idiom of mine as God defines death and gave the impression that God was the father of physical death, which certainly was not my intention. However, you're entering in the consequences of physical death. The fact that death physically is the consequence of sin. Death eternally, as God defines death, is also a consequence of sin. But there's a difference between the two consequences. I hope that makes sense. So whenever you're in a discussion on death, you have to ask, why is this the means? It's the only means. There's a medical construction here. There's a medical purpose to it. There's also a spiritual purpose. So, again, physical death as a consequence of free will choosing. Sin and death is indeed a complex subject, and it's one that we have barely covered. I know you don't think so, but it is barely covered. I really appreciated Bill the Cow's comments on substance dualism today. Uh, I get asked many, many times, why do you do things like Schrodinger's cat, substance dualism, Spend so much time on Genesis 3 because the question is always the same. Do you, are you extinguished at physical death? And if you are extinguished at physical death, then you have no existence. You just have a temporal state waiting to be revealed as nothingness. And that is, of course, complete contrary to scripture and its hopelessness. And it is doom, essentially, and it makes no sense. And, of course, it can't be true. So once you get to that position, theologically, philosophically, scientifically, everything is against extinguishment. Everything. Then, of course, now it's the time to find out what's true. And all of that that I just said was to clear up February 11th and to set before everyone those three things. I'm not going to write them on the board, but hopefully you'll remember them because here they come. I have the father of all lies and murder, murder, the first to lie, the first to murder. I have the father of all who physically die, the one who brought physical death into the into humanity, into the the federal head who brought it into the entire physical organic existence. A reality, sorry. And then I have the mother of the living. So I have those three with their titles. I add, of course, Adam's title to him, assuming that he would agree with me. I think the case can be made. I think Adam was deeply distressed at the consequences of what he did. It's a wonderful study, and we're not going to discuss it today, I wrote maybe, but I know we're not discussing it today. It will come up in the weeks to come. Instead, we're back to our list here of Joel 3. That's the January 28 lecture discussion number 9 list. Before I do the list, how about this? Throw in one more thing that will bug you. I have a terrific letter from a gentleman in Texas, Mark from Texas, who writes very profound things. Uh, he has a friend, James, that is the two of them are amazing and I value them very much. Uh, he and I or He got in a discussion with an, an Anglican priest over essentially the nature of Christ, a very complicated subject, the wills of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Christ is perfect. Complete humanity in the sense that he is totally human. There is no reduction of his humanity. If you try to reduce his humanity, then you have a tendency to drift out of orthodoxy. So you will see throughout history, different denominations have reduced the humanity of Christ. And you don't want to do that, but at the same time, you don't want to introduce sin to it. Then you have lost its perfect, the perfect humanity of Christ. He is also infinite, absolute God at all times. He's never not God. Now, how do I reconcile this mystery of godliness? That's what it is. The tremendous, most difficult mystery, the great mystery of godliness. Mm-hmm. So that's where Mark was um, talking to this person about this. And I... I would say to you, if you're going to enter into discussions like that, the first place you do is go to Melchizedek. And this is the question I will ask you: Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 13 and 14. He meets Abraham. I have the king of Sodom, which of course is a satanic—that's uh, a satanic reference. You'll see the king of Sodom has died just prior to this meeting, but there he is again. So I have Melchizedek, who is the high, the most high priest. The king of Jerusalem, Uh, he is, and Abraham gives him the reverence that you only give God. So the indication to me is without doubt, and I know people disagree, they see him as a type. I'm going to tell you that that is Christ himself. And he, of course, returns at Sodom. And Abraham sees him again and knows that this is God and treats him again as if he is God there. So two places Abraham treats Jesus Christ as God, but Christ is in a human form. Same thing you see with Joshua, the commander, the angel of the Lord is. This is called pre-incarnate Christ, or theophanies, or christologies. You find the christophanies. You find all kinds of references to it. I'm going to ask you this: How human was Christ? When he's Melchizedek, and he's always Melchizedek, it's the eternal order. How much humanity? When he's with Abraham, does he eat? How much humanity does he have? You have to not only just explain the nature of humanity with Christ uh, post-birth, or actually post-incarnation, you have to explain the humanity of Christ in his pre-incarnate. Uh, status. That's also Daniel 7, right? Isaiah 6. So these are tough discussions. I want you to begin to. Uh, I got inspired to, to, to tell you to start working on it because of uh, Mark's particular lunch. Okay. We are going to take another run at Joel 3.3. We took one run at it last Sunday. Mostly, as usual, it's a dance around the perimeter. That's what we do. And make no mistake, looking over the passage prior to advancing into the depth, that's good policy. Dance around the perimeter. Don't go in. The fools rush in. Elvis Presley. Don't go flying in there. Figure out what you're up against. That's why I make so many lists and accumulate all the pieces. Try to find out what the other side, this is a bad te- uh, analogy, how big is the other army before you go in there with your uh, BB gun. Figure out what you're going to have to run into and what you're going to have to know. It's, and I, That's why I seem to take a long time. It, it seems to be never ending, but really I try to do as much as I can to present the challenges. Joel 3-3, here it is right here, so pretty much from a few weeks ago, presents considerable challenges. It's a, as all scripture is, it's incredible. And as usual, there's no shortage of opinions with regard to Joel 3. Everybody has an opinion on it. Lots of commentators wrote lots of books on Joel 3. Joel 2. Most, however, are non-contextual, those opinions. And I have as many as I can get. I read them all. I like to read them. I need to know if somebody thinks I'm an idiot. I find lots of people that think so. I just, I know you're stunned. (coughs) But it's okay. I like it, actually. It it challenges me to make my opinion uh, as solvent as possible. But most of what I read is, is not... At the level I was hoping for, and again, they're, they are overwhelmingly non-contextual. And what I mean by that is they do not take into account the behold of Joel. Let me get there. For behold, Joel 3, one. in those days and at that time. They don't pay any attention to that that sentence. It's frustrating to me. What is the behold? What is the great behold? When God gives you a behold, you're about to be swamped. Your canoe is going to be sunk. Start paddling. Big, big things are coming. And there's a behold here. And that behold means I've got to know something that's coming next is so amazing. It's going to blow me down. And here it is. Behold, in those days and at that time. Fantastic. What is the truth and the mystery here? The great truth. And obviously to resolve this passage of Joel 3, or the hall of Joel 3, frankly, with accuracy is going to require establishing correctly what day is it and what time is it. And frankly, it's actually more than that. Stop saying frankly. I don't even know Frank. Where did that come from? I should put it on the board. We have a Frank category. Why isn't it friendly? I've <laughs> always wondered. Yeah, I mean, it's a... What time is it? What day? There's days here. I've got to know all the days and I've got to know the time. In those days and at that time, that's what we have to do. First, before we go anywhere, and we have to know that that's a behold, holy mackerel, honey child. When does Joel 3, 1 through 6 occur? That's ultimately the question. What are the days to which Joel refers? These are not arbitrary. These are special. They have incredible meaning and he wants you to know about it, Israel to know about it. What specific time and in those days, what specific time in those days has been singled out and what happened at that time? If you get that answered, then the rest of Joel 3 begins to open up for you. Boom. Okay, we have actually important information on both sides of the behold. We have the amazing verse of Joel 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is right before the behold. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Joel 2.32 is quoted by Paul at Romans 10.13. Oh no, all this time, Joel 3, Joel 2 has been a Romans topic. Romans 10.1 sets the context for Romans ten thirteen. So Paul lifts out this Joel verse because Joel Joel, Paul knows what the behold means. Paul knows what day it is and what or what days they are and what time it is in those days, and he thinks that Joel two thirty two belongs here. How smart is he compared to us? He's got the Holy Spirit on his side while he writes this he is inspired and used by the holy spirit to write scripture so romans 10:1 sets the context he says this or the bible says this brethren my heart's desire and prayer my heart's desire and prayer to god for israel is that they might be saved. So he obviously believes that Joel 2.32 is about the salvation of Israel. Now, he also, in the book of Romans, incorporates it with the Gentiles. So it is about everybody, but he knows that that behold is talking about something that he prays for every day, and that is the salvation of his nation, Paul's nation, his people, his brethren, Israel, whom he loves. It's something that he cares about deeply and we should uh, uh we should read the paragraph to which Joel 232 resides so here we go Romans ah, 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 ah. Do I get to count it as a Romans lecture? Yes, I do. Romans 101 or wherever I ended up. Where did I end up? Who who knows? Here we are verse 9 chapter 10 that if you Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now, when he says God, his definition of God might be different than your definition of God. What's Paul's definition of God there? The entirety of God. Don't separate God into persons unless you really know what you're doing. Don't make a triad out of the triune. So I could read it this way, couldn't I? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that the Lord Jesus has raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, it's perfectly fine. Absolutely accurate. If you think that somehow Christ did not raise himself, you are in, what's that word we want? Error. And you have to move over to the left side. (laughs) Thanks for laughing. Of the congregation. You're on the left side. That's right. Which makes you a what? A goat. We'll get to that later. No one laughed at the goat joke. Thank you for pretending. (laughs) That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Himself from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That is not Joel 2.32. That's still Joel. We'll get to that in a minute. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's your Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32. So Paul is convinced, and he wants you to know, that he knows that Joel 2.32 is talking about the salvation of Israel, and that leads us to the behold, that and what time it is, and what days are in that time, or what time is in those days. And that again, uh, that is the most known, Joel 32 is the most known Romans verse, and it's really a Joel 2.32 verse. And within it and within Romans ten is, is Joel, and that's very important. Now most b- commentators, and probably your Bible, will have this for you, will have a little reference. It'll say that uh, Romans ten eleven is really Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. And I won't disagree with that. I think that Isaiah talks about the the uh, make haste which is really unashamed. And I understand why they would say that. But Paul also knew Joel 2.27 was involved here. And if not more so, to his desire for the saving of Israel. So here is Joel 2.27. Then you shall know this is God talking to Israel then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And that, I believe, is more applicable to the context of Romans 10 than Isaiah 28:16. I mean, repeat it. This is God saying to his people, Israel. This is Jesus Christ saying to Israel, then you shall know what's implied. They don't know. They're going to know. What is it that they don't know? Do they know that they don't know? They don't know that they don't know. Then you shall know. So there's going to come a time, then is a time reference, that you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord God. They don't know that Christ is the Lord God. Today they don't know it. And they don't they do know that they don't know it today. And there is no other I am the Lord your God. You're going to know that, Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people shall never be put to shame. My people shall never be put to shame. Jesus Christ announces to Israel that he is the Lord God of Israel. And those who have believed that to be true will be vindicated. That's us. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord God of creation, he's the savior of the world. If he's the creator of the world, that he is the Lord God of Israel and there is no other. If you believe that, you will never be put to shame. That implies something, doesn't it? What does it imply? That there are going to be Jews who believe that that are put to shame. There are going to be Christians who believe that that are put to shame. Who's the one putting them to shame? What does it mean to put to shame? Try it another way. Those who believe him will be vindicated. The mocking, the derision, the reproach of the wicked will be ended. Now, one other note here. Joel 2.27 is a repetition of Joel 2.26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. So again, to repeat the question, who puts the believers in Christ to shame? Paul utilizes these Joel verses to prove that Israel will be saved in Romans 10. To prove that their rejection of Christ is not final. That there will come a day that when Christ will be in the midst of them and say to them, you know who I really am now. The rejection of Christ by the Jewish nation, by the Jews, is not final. And yes, we the Gentiles are grafted in. That's fantastic. Great news for us. And some branches have been broken off because of unbelief. But Israel shall be saved, Romans 11.26 it says in Romans 11:26, Paul's great conclusion on this, that all of Israel shall be saved." He exults over that. He knows that there's going to become a time when all of Israel will be saved. What time is it, and what day in that time is it? I hope that made sense. You should know, when Paul says Romans 11:26, "All of Israel will be saved," that is a tribulational reference. What do I mean by that? What he's saying is, is the Jews of the tribulational period, every Jew who lives at the time of the national regeneration, the time of the national regeneration, what is the national regeneration? That is when Israel knows that Jesus Christ is the Lord God of Israel, which makes him the God of creation. There comes a time, every Jew who's alive at that time, all of Israel in those days at that time shall believe and know that Jesus Christ is in their midst. He is the Lord God, and they will all be saved. Everyone. That's what that 1126 means. doesn't mean that all Jews throughout of all time will be saved. That's called dual covenantism. You'll find many, many pastors that think that's true. What's that word that I want to use here? They're wrong. They discount the blood of Christ. You can't do that doctrinally. Let's read the remainder of Joel 2.32. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. That's salvation. Among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So there will come a time when all the remnant in the tribulation, in those days, everyone believes and they're all saved. Romans 11.26. Okay, maybe you've got all that, maybe you haven't. That's okay. Don't worry about it. The beatings will continue. So all of that and more that is corroborative is, that's the reason I did it, so that you could see the, the corroborative element, corroborative C. can barely say that. Of what Paul is saying in Romans, Romans 10, and Joel 3, here they are. Paul uses Roman or Joel 2 and Joel 3 to demonstrate that all of Israel will have a time when the the deliverance will come. And so that was done to demonstrate that the behold of Joel 3:1 is the day and the time of the tribulation with respect to. Israel the day that they believe. So that is the context of the book of Joel, chapter 3. So we have that as our substrate. Now we can try to figure out Joel 3. If you don't have that as your substrate, good luck. Probably ain't going to get it. Never going to get it. Start out wrong, stay wrong, get wronger. Wronger is the is the verb tense Are the adverb tense wrongerly huh no, I think i write I like if i'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick wrongerly I think that's got some i think i i I got benefit with that, so let's now go back and read Joel when I say benefit I mean monetization you know it's working so well with. With my worst desire advertising and my Diet Coke. Okay, try again. Now, 314, behold, in those days and at that time. There's a specific time and it's in the Tribulational Period. So you got that. When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So Jesus Christ is talking about bringing back the captives of Jerusalem and Judah. I will also gather all nations. So this is what he's telling you going to do at this time in those days. This is what I'm going to do and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I hope all the questions are starting to just pour out of you because they should. There's 50 right there. I mean, can't even get started. And I will enter into judgment with them there. "...on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the Gentiles. They have also divided up my land," he says. "...they have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as payment for a harlot." Now, as payment is in italics, which means it's not there, right? "...they have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink." Then he says this. Indeed, what have you to do with me? That kind of reminds me of an old Robert De Niro movie. Are you looking at me? What have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you... Retaliate against me. It actually means recompense or repay me. Will you give me repayment? But if you retaliate against me, let me do this right. Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me speedily and swiftly, I will return your retaliation, your repayment that you gave me. I will I will return your repayment upon your own head because you have taken my silver and my gold and carried into your temple my prized possessions. And also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have sold to the Greeks. I tried to make him sound mad. He's God, his anger is righteous, mine is sinful. But I wanted to impress upon you that this is probably not good news for they and you. And obviously the valley of Jehoshaphat is key. And it is where Christ gathers those Gentiles who have survived the tribulation. There's a great question of the day. How many are there that survived the great tribulation? Apparently there's a lot. Why didn't they die in the tribulation? They didn't. Why not? The location of this gathering of Gentiles where Christ is. Bringing, what happens here? This is where Jehoshaphat actually means, literally means the place of God. Y-H-V-H, the ineffable, unpronounceable name of God. It is the place where Y-H-V-H judges. So why here? What happened in Jehoshaphat that he picked this place? He could pick any place. He could do it in the air. And eventually he does it in the heaven at the great white throne. This is not the great white throne judgment. He is bringing the Gentiles who have survived the tribulation back here. So that means the campaign of Armageddon has concluded. This is the 75-day interval. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's probably on the page up here. probably repeat it word for word here in a second. Because I don't remember from one page to the other which, what, what I'm talking about. Right. That becomes more and more obvious as I get older. The location of this gathering of Gentiles, as well as the bringing back of those Jews who were in prisons, I have two groups at the Valley of Judgment, the place where YHVH judges. Okay? That brings more clarity to these days and that time. So we need a list. So I have to get rid of this list, which is the appropriate list, and put the next list on. Now, let's do that so that maybe it'll make more sense. Get rid of Fred Lee. Who is here? He tells us, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. So who's here? Why are they here? Who is not here? He's judging a bunch of people. Who's in the, who's in the, whose trial is it? Do I have innocent people here that are going to be judged innocent? Do I have guilty? Do the innocent know they're innocent and the guilty know they're guilty? Who's all here? Why are they here? Who is not here? Where are the ones that are not here? A. First thing, Jesus Christ is here. And they know who Jesus Christ is. That is a big deal. Everybody knows. Why does everybody know? There is not one person that doesn't know who Jesus Christ is at Joel 3. That's in this group. Again, start asking, how many of them are here? They all know that he is. That he's revealed as the God of Israel, the creator God in the flesh, the judge of all things, and he's here on earth in this valley. Why this valley? Who came with him? Did he come alone? He didn't. Who came with him? Go ahead, tell me who's there. The armies of heaven came with him. More questions. Who's in the armies of heaven? Is that the angelics, the angelic host, or is that the tribulational saints? Is that the raptured church, the bride of Christ? What do we know about them? Revelation nineteen fourteen, Matthew twenty five thirty one. They follow him on white horses. How many horses? Why are they white? How did they get white? Where did they come from? How big a stable does God have of horses? Does he change every single horse that he's got to white? That seems boring. Mm-hmm. Who's got the job with a shovel? How many are in the armies of heaven and how many horses and why are they coming on horses and why are they coming with him? I have Jewish captives now. Uh, Jewish captives. What's the questions? They're the captives from Judah and Jerusalem. Which usually is the same thing. It's not. So who are the captives? What's the difference between Judah and Jerusalem? Where were they held captive? When did they become captives? Who captive did them them? Who put them in captivity? I tried to make a verb out of captive. They did it. Why weren't they killed? You'd think they'd be killed. What's the whole point of the tribulation with respect to the Antichrist and Satan? Kill all the Jews. These aren't killed. These are put in captivity. Why? And then I have Gentiles that survived the tribulation. So I have survivors. And I have two groups of survivors. I have real survivors and not real survivors. I have, as you know, goats and sheep. Two groups, two sub, in a a subgroup. Two groups, two subgroups of the group. Goats and sheep. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. What is the basis that one is a goat and one is a sheep? I know what the, the goats sit in the left side of the auditorium as I decide which is left. Right now I'm deciding that's left, and now I'm deciding that that's left. Ref, left is a relative term, but that's not the case here. What makes a goat a goat and a sheep a sheep? and all of this is explained as you might remember from last week by the parables of Matthew 24:32 through 25. He gives us five parables there after you can make the case that the fig tree is not a parable but i believe that it is. I think it's called the parable of the fig tree correctly. The fig tree has come back. So Christ comes along in Matthew 24 32, And he sees a fig tree, as you know. And he says, I believe that he sees a fig tree. I think it's a specific fig tree. We'll get to that next week. The fig tree has come back. Its branches have become tender. Leaves have come forth. Summer is near. That is the sign of the fig tree. So the end of the age of the Gentiles has occurred. And uh, Israel uh, has begun to bloom. That Some of that could be... Um, simultaneous, but that is the sign of the parable of the fig tree. In other words, the fig tree could become tender as the end of the age of the Gentiles is occurring, and it could be uh, this in the same period of time. But at some point, Israel begins to bloom, and we have to divine blooming. And that tells us, Christ tells us, that the return, his return is imminent. And obviously, a judicious student of Scripture would now spend a great amount of time accumulating every single fig tree he can find in the Bible. And try to figure out why a fig tree, why not uh, an apple tree, why not a cherry tree. He could pick any tree, but he does it. He picks a fig. Where's the first reference of fig in the Bible? Come on, you can do this, Genesis 3. That's right. so start if you 're going to start on the mystery of the fig tree i'd recommend matthew twenty one eighteen through twenty two as a as a place to go and you 're going to again define bloom after the fig tree now the parable of the fig tree, Christ places himself, places himself into the pattern of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which is twelve steps. He brings up specifically step nine of those twelve steps, so go find out what those twelve steps are i 'll help you today that is step nine is where the father. Gives his approval of the completion of the bridal chamber. Now last week Bill the Fast talked about how big the bridal chamber is. It's a hundred and, I'm sorry, it's fifteen hundred by fifteen hundred miles square. That's a big area. Go look at Alaska, which is bigger than California. Uh, Montana and Texas put together. Let me repeat that. Alaska is bigger than Montana, California, and Texas put together. And what's the distance between Anchorage and Fairbanks? 360 miles. What's the distance between Fairbanks on the, on the road to the North Slope? Another four or five hundred miles. We're a long way from 1,500. And how high is this cube? 1,500 miles high. How much, how much atmosphere do we have before you can't breathe? How many of you climbed Mount Everest this month? Okay, it's about, what, 25,000 feet or so? How many miles does that come on? We're back in the 8th grade. Let's call it five miles. How deep is the ocean? Right now, if you get above five miles high, you're dead. And if you're five miles below the crust or the earth's surface, you're dead. So if I told you I had ten miles of, of area, how many of those areas do I have? The size of Alaska, the Yukon territories, uh, if I brought all that land square. I mean, how much, how much atmosphere do I have? I have ten miles Of area below and above the the Earth. How many of those do I have? I have 150 of them. Right? That's a lot. That's 150 Earths almost. How much room has he got for you? In case you're wondering if you'd get a garden, you know, or you're going to live in a condo. You know, am I going to have any room to play softball? How does he work this out? Start thinking as, as he thinks. Anyway, he gives his approval of the completion of the bridal chamber. I tell you that that is the city of New Jerusalem. That's step nine. That's what the father does. And step nine and step ten are intimately connected. And they're to be watched for and anticipated. That's where step ten is where the bridegroom comes and abducts the bride. I'm sorry, that's step 11. So, understand where what step 9 and step 10 are, and they're to be watched for. Watch therefore, anticipate them. And some are going to watch, and some will never watch. Some will care, and no, others will not care. That tells you what's a goat, what's a sheep. I see your hands. Can you lift that foot? No. <laughs> Those of you on the internet... Terithithy. Why is her name Terithasy? People ask her, your name isn't really, they find out it's not really Terithithy. And they go, that's really disappointing. And they come to me, why did you call, why do you call her Terithithy? Because I couldn't say things like Terithithy when I was little. I had to go to speech therapy and I can barely say it now. But it is a combination of a word, right? It's a combination of pterodactyl, terrifying, and terrific. One out of three is not bad. And she's got a broken foot that she claims she got from tripping over a cat named Bill. Bill the cat. Nobody's buying that. Nobody on the internet's buying it. Point is, is all she can do is hand signals, which she does every Sunday. Some good, some not so good. Anyway, where am I? <laughs> I try to get letters any way I can. After the betrothal ceremony references, there's the faithful servants who give food. Give food. Who do they give food to? And blessed is that servant when the master comes, the one who gives food. Those are blessed. And then condemnation is for the evil servant who says the master is delaying his coming. That's the wicked servant who beats his fellow servants. Do they live? How much does he beat them? The master will come and cut that servant in two. One is a goat, one is a sheep. One cut in two is a goat. I think that's obvious. Obvious question, why does the wicked man beat to death the other servants? Why does the wicked servant believe the judge will not judge, that the judge will not end evil? Why does the wicked servant believe that? Where is the genesis of that thought process? Then the evil five virgins come after that. They're subsequent, sequentially next, who believe the, that's a redundancy, who believe that the oil can be sold. Oil can't be sold. It can't be bought and it can't be transferred. They're wicked because they express that it can. The evil servant is wicked because he believes that the judge will never judge sin. Now, that's followed by the wicked and lazy servant who accuses Christ of being the author of sin or evil. That's the talents, Matthew 24:24. 24, 24. And what comes next is the goats and the sheep. So the whole point is, is those five parables tell you what's a goat and what's a sheep and why. So now we know who they are. And those in the tribulation who fight to save the Jews, who give food to the poor, as God defines poor, In contrast to those who sought to kill and slaughter, extinguish Israel. Some are goats. Some are sheep. I think we can figure it out today who the goats are and who the sheep are. The lines are already being drawn. The fig leaf, in my opinion, has got tender sprouts on it. Summer is near. The bridegroom cometh. The judge, the king, is going to return. He's going to cut people in two. So anyway, from this foundation now, the rest of Joel 3 builds. you got to go fast. The mystery of casting lots. Why are we casting lots? As I said last week, that's a religious act. That's the high priest reaching into his breastplate, the ephod. Yes or no. The harlot, the boy, the girl, the wine. What is that? It's in the context of that time and that day. If you've got that, you'll figure it out. Render me payment, he says. What does that mean? Silver and gold, carrying God's precious good things into temples. The selling of the Jews to Gentiles. Questions explode from all of these components, these elements. Remember, again, these are tribulational events. These are happening right before the end of the campaign of Armageddon. Therefore, we've got to ask questions that reflect the time at which these things are done. And if we do not have the time correct, the question is not going to be answerable. So, if you try to take this out of the tribulation and answer it, no. But if the time is right, then the answers become, in my opinion, obvious. So let's ask correct time questions this way, this way and see what happens. For example, why does a harlot want a Jewish boy in the tribulation? Why? Doesn't want a Gentile boy, wants a Jewish boy. Who is this harlot? How many of these harlots do I have? I've got a Jewish boy. I take it to a harlot. Who's the harlot? She wants the harlot. Does the harlot have a temple in the tribulation? Is it a great harlot? See what I did there? All questions and must, all questions must and should contain the in those days and at that time. They have, they have scattered among the nations my people, whom they have scattered among the nations, on account of my people, my heritage. They have divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. Who's the they? A whole bunch of theys. Who is it? Who is this they? Whoever they is, they is about to feel the wrath of the God of creation. As an aside, as you might have noticed, the they becomes you in verses four through five. Why the switch? He goes to you. When does, this is a trial. When did the they become the you in the context of the trial? And then he asks that incredible question. Indeed, what have you to do with me? What's the implication? Nothing. They have nothing to do with him. There is no connection between Christ and the goats. Why isn't there a connection at the end of the tribulation? What has happened in the tribulation? All of Israel knows that Jesus Christ is the God of creation and the God of Israel and that he is in their midst. All of Israel knows. He has broken the stiff-neckedness. I didn't say nakedness. Stiff-necked stiff, stiff stiff-necked aspect Of the Israel nation, of the Jews. He calls them the most stubborn. He broke the most stubborn. The most stubborn all believe in him. Who doesn't believe? If I can convince the nation of Israel that Christ is God, how is it that no one else is convinced? What's happened to them? They have nothing to do with him. They have no connection to him at all. They have seen the evidences of the tribulation. Didn't matter. Find you of Capernaum? Will you repay? Will you retaliate? Will you render me recompense? Because you have taken my silver and my gold. Obviously, this narrative is going to continue next week to the end of Joel 3. God himself is speaking at the time of his judging of the Gentile nation. God says things to Israel. God says things to those who gathered to kill Israel, these Gentile nations. And notice that the Gentile nations have this overwhelming urge all through history to gather themselves together, to annihilate, to extinguish Israel. They do it over and over and over again. They're doing it now. They're going to do it in a couple of weeks. It's what they do. Ask why. Throughout history, we've watched this procession of Gentiles gathering to kill the Jews. The pattern's fascinating, at least to me. I can't help wonder why it's connected. I wonder if it is connected to Genesis chapter 3. I'm positive that it is. I think this is so. It's in my feeble attempts to figure out the motives of those. Ultimately, that Satan leads to Satan who desire above all things to kill every single Jew that lives. They want to kill them all. Every last one. Questions arise. Fourth, as they always do. Where did somebody try to kill every single Jew before? Or every single human being tried to kill everything? Where did that happen? Ultimately, they somewhat succeed, don't they? Genesis 6. What would be proved if every single Jew was eliminated from the earth, killed physically? What would be proved? This becomes the remnant issue. God always has a remnant. You can't kill him. He always keeps a remnant, no matter what you do. But I'm getting off track. For today, the Gentiles always are gathering themselves. But at Joel 3 and Matthew 25, 31 through 46, they're not gathering themselves. They're not interested in being gathered. They don't want to be gathered anymore. They're not gathering. What does Christ do? He gathers them. They have always gathered themselves to kill the Jews. Now God is gathering them to do what to them? Cut them in two. Do they know it? How exactly does He gather them? You ever think of that? He's going to get them all. Everyone that survived the tribulation is going to be there. How's He gathering them? Do the goats hide? The Bible says they try. You're going to hide from the omnipresent, omniscient God of creation. Good luck with that idea. They're hiding from the creator God of all things. I submit that Jesus Christ brings them by force. The irony is apparent. Those who sought, the they's who sought to destroy, snuff out the Jews, are brought by an irresistible force to Israel. I think I know what the force is. It brings them. I think Isaac Newton knows also. They are dragged and bound to their trial before their judge, their king. This is the 75-day interval I mentioned earlier. The harlot who is paid with a boy stands before Jesus. Why did the harlot accept? Why did she want the Jewish male child as payment? Who sold the baby girl for wine? Why did they want wine? What is wine? What is in the wine? Is it grape juice? Is it alcoholic wine? What kind of wine is it? Who had the wine? Why did the one who had the wine take a Jewish female child as payment? What has happened to the economic system? You can see, can't you? The economic system now, the currency is Jewish children. How'd that happen? In those days at this time. Who will come into Jerusalem and seize Jewish children in those days at this time? Who will they sell the children to? What's the purpose? What's the purpose is? Has this ever happened before where Jewish children were sold as currency? Yes, it has happened. When did it happen? How long ago? Mengele, the Holocaust, World War II. Jews were currency. Something wicked this this way comes at this time and those days. Where are we going to find more information? Where are we going to find the compliment, the New Testament commentary to the harlot and the children and the wine and the girl, the boy? Where are we going to find that? It's going to be in the New Testament. It's got to be. In Old Testament, going to have a New Testament compliment. Where is it? It's going to be at Luke 21. And that's where we'll stop and y'all yell, yay. I'll read it. As the musicians begin to matriculate and ambulate towards the front of the stage, I will read 2120 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what time, what day is that? Do they know who Christ is yet? No. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Israel, Jerusalem is destroyed in the campaign of Armageddon. We'll cover it in the coming weeks. Then let those who are in Judea, this has not happened before. This is an end times tribulation. Event. I'll prove it next week. It's called the sign of the, of the destruction of Israel in the tribulation. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not, where are they going, supposed to go? He tells them where to go. They have a place to go too. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Whose vengeance is it? But woe to those who are pregnant. Let me repeat that. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. There you go. The harlot will take a boy. Sell the girl for wine. Woe to those who are pregnant at this time in those days. That have Jewish children. Not going to be pleasant. Who's going to take vengeance? Who's going to take recompense? The Lord God of creation. And the Jews will know.